right. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives on urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton freshman Ryan Bono, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sullivan Meyer. We're so excited to welcome Mr. Wingham Rowan to the show. Sully, would you like to introduce our guest? Wingham Rowan has long been a leader in forecasting the interactions between technology and society. For instance, he created, produced, and presented Cyber Cafe, Britain's longest running TV series about the internet. He was also a presenter on his own program for children, Rowan's Report. More recently, however, Mr. Rowan has been studying the future of labor and how technology can improve the unpredictable nature of the gig economy. He leads Britain's Beyond Jobs Project, project and the international nonprofit Modern Markets for All, which you can find at mm4, that's the number 4a.social. His big ideas about public official e-markets or POMs have been Im implemented recently in Long Beach, California to great success. Um, so because this is such a new idea, uh, such a novel idea, uh, Rowan, do you just want to open up uh, with a, a quick pitch about the concept of poems? Yeah. So this is an emerging possibility for public policy. We call it modern markets for all. And, and the key insight is this. We have a serious markets problem in economies around the world now. At the top of economies, think Wall Street, they have access to the most extraordinary markets that uh, will trade on the tiniest overheads with enormous reliability, they'll proactively find resources, they'll, um, they're very deep, very broad markets, very reliable. And at the bottom of the economy, you mentioned gig work, uh, it's a good example of the problems. You have platforms uh, like Uber, DoorDash and so on, you have workforce scheduling systems and broadly these systems are run around the principle of cutting labour costs. They are uh, disparate. It's very difficult to, to trade across a broad range of skills in these markets. Uh, they are growing rapidly. 35% uh, of Americans uh, were engaged in some sort of algorithmically scheduled work in 2019. It's probably going to be 50% this year. So that is the markets problem. We have this huge disparity in access to markets. It causes all sorts of problems that ripple through the economy. And the private sector alone can't solve the markets problem. And that's really counterintuitive, particularly for Americans. But briefly, bear with me, there are some uh, facilities that capitalism needs that it can't itself provide. So capitalism can't provide a stable money supply. But if governments ensure a stable money supply, capitalism flourishes. And our argument is that uh, governments now need to get their heads around this markets problem and say, we believe that our citizens and our local businesses now have the right to access the best possible markets in which to sell their skills and assets. And if the private sector won't provide those, we, uh, the public sector, are going to make it happen. And the way we will do that to avoid costs for the taxpayer is through a concession which says government has all sorts of uh, facilities. It could interface into a broad, deep, fully functioning system of markets uh, for people at the lower end of the economy. And it is going to do that uh, in return. The private sector operators that take those facilities will have to commit to a whole range of public service obligations like very low fixed rate charges, uh, complete transparency, and so on. So that is the modern markets for all philosophy. Awesome. Yeah, no, that's um, yeah, a really interesting concept. Now, I know you talk a lot about how it can be useful in the lower end of the economy, um, but actually you've talked about how we have these three or four classifications of irregular workers. 
Um, and one of them are these higher skill workers that um, work on contracts like lawyers or web developers. Um, so can they operate on this platform as well? Yeah, um, but it's not really designed for them. So let's talk. So what you're talking about is sometimes called freelancing in your pajamas. So if you're a lawyer, an accountant, a translator, a copywriter, you can pull projects off sites like Upwork, do them at home in your own time, upload them when you've finished and get paid for it. And that part of the labor market is small, but it's working pretty well. When you come down to lower skilled people, people whose skills equip them to work in warehouses, care homes, hospitals, hotels, retail outlets, uh, and so on, then you're talking about people who have to leave the home to be at a specific place at a specific time to do their work. That is a much, much bigger part of labor markets and it's really hurting at the moment. So that is what we're addressing. It's the difficult, chunky, big, low value end of labor markets, it's pretty easy uh, to find lawyers online and it's pretty easy if you're a good, well-connected lawyer to find the work you need. Not really worried about them. Uh, and then if you go to the next stage beyond just employment, think about somebody down the road from you in Trenton who uh, wants, just needs to earn in as many ways as possible. They're in a, what's sometimes called the post-jobs economy. Their chances, because they're low skilled, of ever getting a, a nine to five job with uh, progression and protections and benefits are just evaporating, frankly. So let's think about their total economic potential. In, uh, do they have assets they could rent, a tent, a bike? How do you help them do that? Do they have $50 they don't need until next week? Could we help them uh, loan that out and get a small sum of interest? So you're thinking now about how you release these huge trapped assets at the bottom of economies from people who just do not have the markets. Uh, that they can connect to, to sell the entire range of ways they could uh, be part of the economy. So short answer, not really worried about lawyers and translators, they're doing okay. So, Sort of continuing what you were talking about, um, when you talk about, you know, you if you want to facilitate this sort of e-market, the government should buy a public service sort of at a local level, like if you talk about Trenton, um, they need to buy whatever public service. Um, could you sort of give an example of that or? Yeah, so, so at the bottom uh, end of labor markets, government is typically in most countries, the biggest buyer, either directly or indirectly through suppliers. So to make that tangible government buy, sort of classroom assistants, home care workers, street wardens, uh, cleaning operatives, all sorts of, of roles. And at the moment, governments typically buy those roles through outsourcing agreements with staffing agencies through a whole range of ways. But if government were to say, actually, we could strategically use this enormous leverage we have as this huge buyer of labor, and we're going to use that leverage to create or to initiate the best possible markets for that labor and those people, because then that's good for, for the economy, it's, it, it grows the amount of spending locally, it, it's just good all round, it's likely to be popular with voters if we get it right. So you want government to start thinking, how do we 
use this position as a big buyer of labor, not by sort of dissipating out our spending through all sorts of different channels and different departments, but in a coordinated way through some sort of uh, platform for labor and potentially expanding into other assets that uh, achieves what government, most governments want for their economies, which is you know, growth coming from the bottom up, um, demise of the shadow economy and so on. Um, yeah, so especially in America, um, we, we're faced with this problem where infrastructure projects um, and other things that the government has done for now almost a century or more um, are rapidly getting extremely expensive. Um, so do you envision this as, as a kind of solution to make public utilities cheaper to operate for governments? Well, um, let's keep this very narrow and focused, otherwise it would sprawl all over the place. Um, but yeah, so I'm talking about a system of online markets that operates uh, as a public utility. And that's a completely alien concept at the moment. We are so uh, shaped in our perception of these new markets technologies by what Silicon Valley is delivering for us and our societies are being so shaped by what Wall Street is doing with these new markets technologies. So if I could just use an example that doesn't involve physical infrastructure, because then it gets confusing because government typically or, or often pays directly for new highways and new tunnels and so on. But if you take this, a piece of legislation, which is, I'm sorry, it's British, but the British do this sort of thing more, more openly than America. This is the National Lottery Act of 1994, uh, 1993. Uh, and what in it, all that government did was say, we want a national lottery. We government are going to give a national lottery certain benefits uh, that only government can bestow, um, but we're going to demand certain things from the private sector operators that win the concession to fund, design and operate our lottery. And that was all achieved. Uh, the act went through seven consortia of corporates bid to run the national lottery, the one that came in with the cheapest uh, cut won, and it was staggeringly successful. 96% uh, of Brits played it in its first 18 months. And the national lottery uh, uh, over here massively expanded gambling throughout the economy. And what we're trying to do with modern markets for all is massively expand meaningful economic activity across the, the base of the economy. So we're, we're not talking about traditional infrastructure in the terms of bridges and, and uh, roads and so on. We are talking about something that uh, is is an online experience for most of its users, obviously it has physical service and so on. But the point is, it's not paid for by government. You really don't want government funding, running, designing these markets. It would probably be a disaster, even if they got it right. It's just inherently undesirable for government to have that much power over the economy. You want an independent, robust body of, of self-interested corporates who get it. This concession incentivizes them to massively grow earnings and activity uh, among the, the uh, people at the base of the economy because they're getting, a, a, let's say, a 2% cut of everything that's happening there. Uh, and then government just gets out of the way and lets them get on with it. And that's exactly what happened with our national lottery. I know you have state lotteries over there. Uh, I'm sorry, I just didn't have time to research the New Jersey one to give you a more immediate example. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, but you know, talking about these operators and, and specifically the lottery, the lottery is providing uh, a service, um, whereas these operators would be managing 
actual labor, like actual people. Um, and that seems like a, a higher order activity. I mean, do you envision these operators being responsible for training, vetting, getting background checks or, or paying the employees? No. So uh, this, this, you've really got to limit the power of operators in this model. So let's be clear, right now we're talking about uh, a platform for buying and selling. Uh, it is limited to small transactions. So there's all sorts of detail that has to sit behind this. And I'm sorry, I don't want to get too geeky, but just assume for, for this, that, that there are rules in place that say that the operators can really only trade uh, can only enable uh, buying and selling of, of low value uh, labor and skills or assets. And we could go into that in more detail, but you would be jabbing your eyes out with the virus. So please just take it as red. I can talk about the formula that enforces that. But um, what that does is uh, mean that, that they're, they're constantly trying to drive that part of the economy to grow it. Um, and they can use a whole range of data tools, they can give people all sorts of information, but they're not allowed to buy, sell, or take a position in any market they operate. So they have to facilitate other people doing the same. So uh, you might enter the uh, New Jersey market in poems through a cooperative that acts as your employer of record uh, and payrolls you and insures you. You might choose to do it through a commercial agency that does the same. It's possible local government bodies might want to take on that role, but it's absolutely not the operators. I mean, we really have to understand if government really got its leverage together, if government allowed uh, this poems public official e-market system to interface directly into the courts, into all the licensing databases of who's allowed to do what, uh, if government undertook to promote it through all the channels government have, all these sort of benefits were bestowed on it, it could attract a huge chunk of the economy going through it. I mean, you know, 50% or so. And you really have to limit the powers of anybody running this. And one of the ways you do it is you say to the operators, you're only allowed to operate the core service. That's it. Um, yeah, I think a, a thing that's really interesting about the way you describe this concept is that you have a really specific model for the roles of government and business and operators, not just within the POEMS structure, but also just your broader view of society. Do you see the POEMS concept or, or national e-markets, um, whatever they're called, um, as fundamentally changing those roles or playing within those roles? Playing within. So uh, for some reason, when I talk to Americans about this, that it, it's you often get blank looks, but here we learn in history in Europe about how governments have taken emerging technologies and really made them work for people. Uh, and this is where, you know, I'm just gonna wave the British flag for a moment. In the 19th century, we realized that pumping was a very exciting technology. Uh, and uh, at the time, there were lots of startups pumping river water into well-off homes, and they were making a lot of money because it's a, a lot more convenient to have the river water pumped into your house than having to walk to the river with a bucket. Uh, and then the British government began to realize, actually, if we got involved in water supply, we could create coordinated reservoirs, we could have coordinated uh, pipe routes, we could uh, throw people who chuck uh, sewage in the water supply in jail, and we could have 24-7 clean water for everyone. 
including the, the, the least well-off. And that's what we did, uh, 1848 Public Health Act. And we did something similar with postage, with railways. Uh, actually, you were first on roads. Um, and out of this, Britain led the Industrial Revolution. And we're just a tiny little country off the coast of Northern Europe. But we understood if government takes these emerging technologies and stops saying, oh, how do we stop private sector operators who are being bad from being bad. And if we just say, actually, hang on, this technology could do something so much more exciting and interesting and inclusive, how do we enable it to do that? Then life gets very interesting. And yeah, um, in America, uh, the Graham Willis Act of, I think, 1912 gave AT&T a monopoly on telephones, so long as they cabled up the entire country with one coherent network instead of having dozens and dozens of incompatible phone networks. So governments do this, and so long as they get out of the way once they've done it, uh, I think it works. You know, uh, there are facilities that only government uh, can access that can really help capitalism develop. Um, and you've got to do it very sensitively and don't rush into it. You know, you really want to make sure the private sector can't do this alone. But if you've established all those tests and if the technology could be solving pressing economic and social problems that it's not solving then yeah it's time for government to act so when you talk about sort of the way the government can you know level these inequalities for example giving plumbing or piping water into all homes regardless of socioeconomic status um when you think about poems you know there is a piece there of technology access. If you want to interface with these systems, you need a piece of technology, you need an internet connection, and you need technology literacy to sort of understand how to use the system. Um, so what do you what are your sort of thoughts on on these issues? And what does poems need to roll out along with it to to prevent these yeah. issues from exacerbating? So poems, uh, public official e markets uh, needs more than technology, you're absolutely right. Fine. So uh, you could put in the concession, I'm just holding up our National Lottery Act again, um, because this thinks through all these sort of issues in terms of a lottery. So you could say to the private sector consortia that, that, and that is bidding to run uh, public official e-markets poems, that they have to provide for training uh, in internet literacy in uh, deprived areas, that they have to cable up broadband uh, where it's not already in existence. You know, you can pile the costs up on them, but remember they're going to be getting their return from taking X percent markup of all the activity that goes through these markets. So let's say your target for that is 2%. You don't want them charging more than 2%. It's ludicrously cheap compared to the markets that are out there now. But when you're talking about this sort of scale, uh, it, it becomes viable. So you've... You need to you need to make sure that they are incentivized to do everything it takes to get as much growth from the base of the economic pyramid as possible. Now there are huge numbers of people in Trenton, I'm sure, who don't have good internet access. So you need the operators of these new markets incentivized to solve that. And yeah, you're talking about billions and billions of dollars of investment. But if they get a concession that runs for, I don't know, 20 years, they've got quite a bit of time to recoup that uh, by growing more and more economic activity from the infrastructure that they built. Yeah, um, 
I want to return to a point that you made earlier, um, and I'm not too happy to agree with you here, but okay, let's go for it. Let's let's yeah. let's have the ideological fight. No, 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 no. I completely agree with you that the UK is kind of more of a pioneer in uh, activist governments than the US, um, and I think a lot of that has to do with a, a cultural background of liberty and freedom and all of that. Um, and especially in the US, we have this big libertarian movement. Uh, and there are other people like uh, undocumented immigrants who may be wary of government involvement. Um, our black population has been you know, um, disturbed by the government many times. And so people have reasons um, to distrust the government. Do you imagine these people might be left out of this system because they don't want to operate in a public e-market? Well, the first thing to say is, I don't think anyone thinks this is going to happen first in America. There's a downside to that kind of streak of libertarianism. But uh, just you know, imagine when maybe, you know, maybe somewhere like Ireland, a really small country is first with uh, public official e-markets, and then it spreads and parts of India starts doing it. And then Australia jumps on it. And then gradually you're beginning to get these countries. And this is what happened with Britain in the 19th century. We were soaring away. We, you know, we had coherent railways. We were moving goods around. Our workforce was literate uh, and willing to urbanize because there was clean water, because there was penny postage, so they could stay in touch with home. But they had to learn to read to do it. So we had a literate workforce. And you know, frankly, America was still trying to work out if industrialization was a thing at this point. So at that point, yeah, I suspect somebody in America will start saying, you know what? These people are overtaking us. We have got to start thinking about doing something like this. And then you start asking the questions that gradually lead down the road to, well, maybe we should give our citizens the choice. If they want a public option for online markets, we'll make sure they've got it. Um, but remember, you, you know, nobody forces you to use public utilities. So there's plenty of people who choose not to use municipal water or municipal electricity. And, and that's absolutely right, it must remain. So. I need to keep hammering this point that government doesn't run these markets. It is run, mar the markets are run by a consortium and it could be sort of Goldman Sachs and Microsoft and Oracle and you know, one of the big hosting companies, let's say, for the sake of argument. Now, they are big enough and brand sensitive enough to be really alert to government trying to interfere in those markets. And that's absolutely right. Uh, and as part of the concession, we believe that government should mandate complete transparency from the consortium. So if you think these markets are somehow doing something devious, you can go into the code and poke around or get someone who understands the code to go in and poke around because it's all online. So yeah, um, there are drawbacks. There will always be groups that are disadvantaged by new technology. So you mentioned uh, undocumented workers, uh, Sully. Um, the way around that, we believe, is you allow people to have anonymous accounts. So uh, it's a political decision, um, but that's the sort of issue you have to think through when drafting this concession. But remember, when telephones came in, people who had hearing problems were seriously disadvantaged. And then progressively, technologies like teletype came along uh, and the problem went away. So it's the same here. Uh, there will be people who are disadvantaged. Let's not pretend this is some sort of utopian policy. But uh, you need the system to be broad enough and well thought through enough uh, for those problems to be addressed. 
So, you know, so far we've been talking a lot about sort of the, the theoretical concepts of this idea and how might it work or how should it work, but, you know, um, it's sort of already been implemented in LA County Part of it, with yeah. Long Beach, partly. Um, so could you just sort of run us through, you know, how has that worked so far? What are the advantages and disadvantages that you've seen and how is that experience informing how you pitch this idea going forward? Okay, so um, the first thing I need to do is just sort of explain that we're, what we're doing in California is, is a small part of what we've been talking about so far. So uh, if you don't mind, I'll just give you the quick routes. Um, you mentioned uh, 25 years ago, I was presenting a TV program about the internet. It was actually a TV program about sex on the internet. So, um, but um, that was 25 years ago when the internet was very new and uh, I was completely immersed in the internet in its early days and began to get very excited about the economic potential. It's kind of sad really given that my day job was sex on the internet, but I did. And I wrote a couple of books uh, and normally at this point, I'm just telling you, the author would say, oh, go and read my books. Um, and I'd say, no, don't go and read these books. They're hopelessly out of date uh, now, but uh, go to the website modernmarketsforall.org. Um, and that outlines this, what seemed at the time a, uh, an obvious principle that governments could make uh, trading platforms work much better for people at the economic base and government ought to do that in a way that does not give government any power over the ensuing markets that creates sort of independent operators. Um, but it turned out to be anything but obvious, it turned out to be completely contrarian, um, the book sunk without trace and uh, a bunch of us who'd worked on it all were left thinking well so what do we do now? You know, there is something fundamental here about when governments and new market technologies figure out how those technologies could, could be used to grow the economy. So we focus on a very small part of that vision, which is better markets for gig work. So there are about 20% of adults in America who can't do a regular job. They have medical problems that come and go day to day, they have complex parenting needs, caregiving commitments, studying on a low income, partially employed. They need extra hours of work that fit around other things going on. So how can we get government to create the best possible markets for that? Uh, and that's what we did first with the British government and then with uh, uh, public bodies in America uh, funded by national philanthropies. Um, and yeah, it, it all informs the thinking. We have a platform for, that allows anyone to work hours of their choosing across all different types of work with all sorts of public support uh, wrapped around them. Um, we uh, generate all sorts of data. So to give you a concrete example, we've just done a pilot on a model of uh, responsive at-home childcare during the pandemic. So CARES Act funding was used to say to essential workers in Long Beach, California, if you have a problem about who looks after your children when you leave the home to work, uh, the city wants to help, we can't afford to pay for a full-time nanny. But if you can maximize informal childcare from family members and friends, then for the hours that you really can't get anyone, turn to this market uh, and, you could book the hours of a qualified child carer who was vetted through a nonprofit acting as their employee of record, who'd been re-prepared um, for the COVID era. Uh, and that enabled an awful lot of essential workers to keep going to work, get sleep at night, um, avoid stress and so on. And it was hugely cost-effective. Uh, and it created work for a lot of people who wanted to work in childcare, 
but who couldn't work regular hours because of whatever other issues were going on in their lives. So at this end, we talk about the big vision, modern markets for all, a sort of sweeping policy that says everyone has to have the best possible markets to unlock their entire economic potential. Uh, and what we call the small vision, which is let's just get better markets for gig work for people who are a bit fed up of Uber and DoorDash and Postman. Yeah. Um... That makes a lot of sense. Um, but I mean, you talk about how you were there at the beginning of the internet um, and how you saw this developing. Um, and, you know, at this point, we are kind of locked into this gig platform. Um, like it, it's already an economy, it's already thriving, people already rely on it. Um, but, you know, if you were back hosting sex TV show on the internet, <laughs> um, and there was right a show about the internet on TV on tv yes yeah, yeah yeah that's it it's a college podcast and that's a we're grabbing listeners with that concept <laughs> um okay but back to serious economic policy yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so if, if you were back in the 90s is this how you would have wanted it to develop are you happy with this gig economy or there's uh, no uh, i mean the way the gig economy is shaping up now is horrendous um, it's really, re I mean, I've spent a lot of time with these people that we call the core irregulars. You know, there is this uh, body of people in the workforce who cannot do regular hours. And every time a mayor or governor says, great news, I've got this amazing new jobs initiative, they just fall through the gaps because they're not lucky enough to have 40 hours of availability for work every week. You know, there are people... I mean, I'm just thinking of a woman I talked to recently who has recurring back pain after an injury and she wakes up each morning and she doesn't know if she can work today. Now, are we just saying you're on your own, we don't care? Or is the government that says, you know, we want to get everyone into jobs also going to say, we want to get you whatever work you can do around your back pain. And we want that not just to be survival work. We want this to be a route to progression and development. We want to give you agency and dignity and options uh, and actionable data and all the things that modern market technologies could give you if they weren't focused on these very narrow verticals. You know, there's one market for dog walking, uh, you know, one market for drive your car, pick people up, another market for doing people's washing. You know, uh, we're talking about these people in Trenton. They have a, a each of them has a unique range of skills, enthusiasms, aspirations, assets. Let's unlock the whole lot. Um, just on a public utility basis, if they don't like it, like it, that's fine. Go back to driving for Uber. Go back to doing dog walking through WAG. Don't mind. You know, nobody forces you to use the uh, the, the public uh, road network. You know, find a landowner and drive over his land. So uh, that's what we're doing here. And yeah, I passionately believe that the gig work market as it stands is way inferior. And I don't think it works for the other side as well. So we have to get a bit nuanced here, but broadly the gig work platforms, the Ubers, the DoorDashes, the Grubhubs are the tip of an iceberg of labor scheduling now. Underneath the waterline is much, much bigger, much less well-known systems called workforce scheduling tools. And they are typically deployed by big corporates. So all over Trenton, there will have been people who are W2 employees of, well, hotels a bad example in the pandemic, of warehouses, of uh, stores, um, uh, care homes, all sorts of enterprises. And they will have woken up this morning and they don't know if they're going into work. 
because the scheduling system that runs the employer's uh, workforce with such incredible cost-cutting efficiency hasn't decided, doesn't have the data points yet to know if it needs that person uh, and their skills and possibly not even at what location it'll need them if it does need them. So you now have this huge section of the workforce who are just being scheduled very aggressively in ways that work brilliantly for the employers and are just tearing their family lives apart. You know, it, 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 how are you going to make rent? How are you going to put food on the table for the kids tonight? You don't know if you're working today. You've got to stay available tomorrow because the scheduling system might call you in then. So you've somehow got to scrabble for a few extra hours today. A lot of people are turning to the shadow economy. And that's really bad news for all of us in all sorts of ways, particularly in a pandemic. So that's the problem that we have to start getting our heads around. And it's just, I think, frankly, it's naive to wait for DoorDash and Uber and Grubhub to try and create a better labour market. It's not their job. Their job is to create a return for their investors. And they're, and they're not profitable, but they're, they're on the way. So they're doing a reasonably good job of that. Traditionally, government agencies have taken on this function of ensuring there's a healthy labour market. That's why we have why you in America have, I think it's 4,200 America job centers. Uh, they're non-profit, publicly funded um, staffing agencies. It's why every state in the US funds a online job board that sits there as an alternative to indeed.com or monster.com. Um, they're not doing it for this new world of flexible work. That's the problem. So you, you've mentioned like, the the issues with you know work-life balance and the attempt to sort of you know get the most efficiency possible for the cheapest labor possible um can you just sort of reiterate how exactly poems would prevent that and would prevent you know let's say i'm a employer why wouldn't i want poems to get the most efficient work possible yeah so uh in in a world with uh public official e-markets where you really have deep broad uh, uh, markets for all sorts of labor and assets that are uh, directly interfaced into all sorts of public facilities, then there comes a point where you're running a warehouse in Trenton and you will find that if you think you can just keep telling your workers uh, with text messages, come in today, I'll tell you tomorrow whether you're gonna come in tomorrow, you will find your workers gravitating into poems. And at some point, you might want to link your workforce scheduling system into poems. So let's say you've got a pool of 100 workers around Trenton that you are happy to have work in your warehouse. You've inducted them. Uh, they pass your standards. So what we're saying is, why don't you offer that 100, those 100 people, the chance to sell their time to you? through public official e-markets. Um, and the advantage of that is that I'm one of those workers. You don't need me today. Well, I'm cool about that because Poems is finding me all sorts of other opportunities. It's got data about me. It knows I'm reliable. Uh, it knows where I want to go. It's building me stepping stones. Um, and yeah, uh, you need me tomorrow? Well, that's, that's fine. You know, I have told Poems to uh, give you priority rights on my time. But you know what, if other people start paying me more or giving me more stability or better opportunities, I might start switching you off in my account on poems. So you might want to start paying me more, giving me more stability. That is how markets are supposed to work. This isn't some radical concept, you know, buyers and sellers find equilibrium. Um, so 
the short answer is don't think of this as some sort of huge clash between public infrastructure, online markets, and what we have now, these um, private vertical markets. It, the infrastructure is, it's like the water supply. I mean, it's just there. You just use it however you want. You know, government doesn't care if you have a bath or a shower. Government doesn't care how often you make coffee with the public water supply. Government just gives you the public water supply, makes sure you can't pollute it, makes sure you pay in proportion to using it, and that's it. And it's exactly the same here. You know, we are so shaped in our thinking about markets technologies by what's happening at the moment without government involvement it can actually be quite difficult to get your head around how radically different it could be uh, if government decided yeah we're going to take uh, we're going to come up with some sort of vision for this like we did for electricity for air traffic control for broadcasting uh, for mobile telephony and a whole host of other genuinely potent technologies yeah um so i can definitely see how this would quickly surpass perhaps the, the gig economy as a more efficient way for uh, employers to find labor, especially low-skill labor. Um, but I'm still not quite clear on how this improves the experience for, I mean, I, I can see how it improves the experience, but I still think you have a lot of the underlying issues of the gig economy, you know, the constant monetization of your time, the fetishization of efficiency, um, it seems like it could still have really detrimental effects on a low skill laborer's uh, mental health and work life balance. Yeah. So let's be clear this is just a market system. Um, there's no social engineering attached here. It, uh, all we're interested in is making sure that these private sector operators are incentivized to drive up everyone's earnings and, uh, you know, that they get as much work or, or you know, use of their sale of their assets as possible uh, within whatever controls they set. So yeah, it doesn't magically solve a whole lot of social problems. It's not a silver bullet, but one of the things that poems, uh, public official e-markets will do that the current crop of vertical profit extracting markets don't is support interventions. So, and those can be commercial interventions or they could be uh, philanthropic interventions. So let's say that the data in public official e-markets is showing there's a real shortage of roofers in Trenton. There's just not enough people with qualifications for roofing. Um, every roofer is getting, you know, 90% of their hours booked all the time. So there's an investment opportunity there because there are people who will be close to being roofers. They just don't have the certification. They may currently be working as scaffolders, for instance, or uh, painters uh, qualified to work on high buildings. So uh, let's say you're an investor uh, and you could say to Poems, I will fund training for 50 provenly reliable uh, paint, uh, painters and scaffolders to train as roofers. But in return, I want 15% of their enhanced earnings for the following six months. And Poems will enforce all that. Uh, and then Poems says to me, you're a scaffolder, but you could earn an extra uh, $80 a week as a roofer. But for the first six months of that, $20 of that is going to have to go back to the investor who funds your training. Are you interested? And if I say yes, it then starts enforcing that relationship. Now, I'm describing it at a very granular level. Think of how a, a, a really efficient poem system could start creating funds of funds and um, aftermarkets and so on. So it could just be some Wall Street algorithm that says, you know, put 100 million 
dollars every week into targeted upskilling where the data is within these ranges and so on because remember a proper modern market system will generate extraordinary amounts of granular data we forget that because the current crop of gig work markets don't release their data you know, I, i've got no way of knowing how buoyant the market for deliveries around trenton is this afternoon because the companies that have that data each only have a little sliver of the data because they're all so siloed and fighting each other uh, and whatever they've got they're certainly not going to share it with me so i'm just fumbling around uh, blind so we're kind of traveling a journey uh, here if you don't mind me saying so uh, ryan and sully where i'm trying to get you to to abandon the way you instantly assume things are because you are seeped in this world of exploitative uh, commercial purely commercial um, markets that are focused on making a return for investors i'm talking about a completely different application for all these technologies um, and it can take time to kind of get your head around how different that will be That's, yeah, I, I definitely get that. It's a really different world to acclimate to. And I want to make sure our listeners have the opportunity to kind of wrap their heads around it too. Um, so just to be clear, it seems like you think a lot, not all, obviously, I'm not going to, you know, like you said, it's not a utopia, but it seems that by creating a modern market or rather the unequal distribution of modern market technology is the source of a, a huge amount of inequality in our society. Yes. And if we do that technology, then our society inherently becomes more equal. Yes. Gotcha. I get that analysis um, and it's definitely very appealing. Um, but you know, there's a lot of data that showed that in the service economy that we were developing pre-pandemic, pre-recession, um, there were plenty of jobs to go around. Um, in fact, employment kept climbing, uh, the unemployment rate kept decreasing. Um, but there was some suspicion that it was actually people getting multiple jobs because life in America had become so unaffordable or life in, in most developed economies were becoming so unaffordable. And, you know, I could see how wages increase moderately through uh, a national aid market. But do you actually see this kind of solving some of these affordability crisis issues or do we still have to attack that in some other way? Um, I would not position officially backed e-markets as a silver bullet solution to anything. Um, it's, it's more nuanced than that. It's, it's as much about what it enables as what it just generically does. So let's just briefly try picking apart inequality. So I would argue a key, well, it's I think it's established fact a key driver of inequality is financialization that money is just constantly being sucked out of the real economy into Wall Street now I would argue that that's partly caused by deregulation but there's a, a huge role played by modern markets and we can't see the markets that Wall Street are using you know we see on the news bulletins we see the sort of you know walls of screens with all sorts of funny colored lines moving around but what those markets are doing is breathtaking um, and if you could bring that down to the base of the economy in terms of identifying opportunities for me as a generic worker in let's say Trenton and um, if uh, you could uh, reward me for my reliability if you could unlock my assets my aspirations 
And at the same time, you are beginning to reverse this huge suck of money up the economy because you've now got equally efficient markets at the bottom. So just go back to that example uh, that I gave of investing in me to become a roofer. That is dollars that are flowing into my training and my development that right now would probably be flowing into some sort of uh, financial speculation or financial maneuverings. So you're beginning to redress that balance. Um, somebody who's got $10 million to invest over the next week could say, yeah, I'm going to put it into sort of, you know, uh, I don't know, some sort of obscure uh, currency futures. Or they could say, well, I've got the poem screen flashing, you know, real shortage of classroom assistance uh, across New Jersey. Um, estimated earnings of classroom assistance, if we had 500 more of them. You know, you, you can do that. You can absolutely set up all these triggers and all this data. Um, that becomes equally attractive. So I would argue the first thing that Poems does is start the process of sucking money back down the economy. Then in terms of, I mean, you were asking about rising wages. Think of it as individual. So this isn't necessarily about collective bargaining. You know, we, we're stuck in this idea that you know, if you are a, I don't know, a, a, a dog walker, you are paid X. But I might be a dog walker, but also do some childcare, but also do a bit of van driving. And I can also operate a switchboard uh, and I'm quite good at gardening. And I really want to uh, work in um, facilities management. So it's about how the system puts me on these stepping stones through all that, getting me uh, incremental uh, credentials as I go, allowing me to keep proving my reliability and leveraging that record of reliability to attract training and investment. That's how it does it. It's not a case of rising the level of wages in the way you would with a minimum wage. I mean, of course it enforces all that. Of course, things like minimum wage will feed through immediately into these markets, but it's doing it in much more nuanced ways as well in the way that the Wall Street super new generation of markets are doing all sorts of amazing things that we don't really understand at the moment. Yeah, I actually wanna put a, a pin in that because there's somewhere else I wanna go. Um, but I do want to talk about how sellers will change their labor. But for right now, um, you're talking about the financialization of the economy um, and how it obscures the values of things, and especially labor. Uh, reminds me actually a lot of um, Mariana Mazzucato, uh, the economist. Yeah, Also yeah, yeah. British. Yes. <laughs> well, she's got all kinds of Italian, American. Well, kinds that's of true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> um, but do you see this as a tool of achieving her goal of the economy appreciating the actual value of labor and, and operating on that? Um, is it a way of fulfilling value theory? Uh, I'm just the plumbing guy. This is terribly, terribly important. There is no social engineering here because modern markets are so unbelievably powerful and nuanced and capable of doing things we don't understand. You have to have some people who just say, that's above my pay grade. That's for elected officials to decide. So I would say, uh, if that's the priority for government, yeah, I can absolutely see how the market would deliver it. But my job, you know, our job here is just to say, you need the best possible markets to unlock what people at the bottom of the economy want to sell. Now, what you want to do with that, how you want it to go, that will be, you know, any uh, 
legitimate market is shaped by regulations, by interventions, by all these factors. And our job is just to make sure the tools exist within the markets for those levers to be pulled. It's not our job to decide how those levers are pulled. So if you want a very quick analogy, most countries put fluoride in the public water supply. It's just a great way of protecting children's teeth that doesn't cost anything, but you know some people are a bit suspicious of it. It's a political decision, but you say to the water companies, what's your view on how much fluoride? And they'll say, oh, I don't care. You know, I just tweak a little setting on my control panel to control how much fluoride. I don't care how much it is. You tell me how much you want. And that's the point here. We're not trying to sort of take over the economy. We're just trying to say, you need much better markets. And then we're happy to advise on what they might do, but we're not going to, we're not, it's not our job to decide. Um, so, you know, you're, you're talking a lot about this, the financial market has these crazy, crazy data systems. They can, you know, know when something's going to happen before it happens and whatnot. When you think about the, the modern markets for, for the labor market, you know, how long do you think that data might take to sort of be worthwhile? Like if you're thinking, you know, machine learning, it needs to figure out how things work. Is there sort of a timeline you have in mind? Okay, we implement it, and then by this point, it might be... Oh, I see what you mean. When, when does it build up the data sets to be really useful? Um, it'll take time, but you're talking about real-time data here. So there's some very exciting data points. So, for instance, we already measure what we call utilization. So if I want to work for 30 hours this week and I only get booked for 15 hours, I've got a utilization of 50%. And you can measure utilization across geographies, types of work, assets, um, individual characteristics of, of workers and so on. So if you want to know what was the utilization of um, people under 26 doing cleaning work who also had a classroom uh, assistant degree within five miles of Trenton Town Hall last week, it'll tell you. Uh, and if you want to compare that to the earnings of shop fitters or carpet layers, it will do it for you. So the data becomes useful within the first few weeks, I'd argue. But remember, it's gonna be a thin market at first. So it's only indicative. It's as it deepens and broadens that these data sets become enormously useful. And again, remember, I'm just a plumbing guy. So it's not my job to interpret this data. It's my job to ensure that the data is anonymized to protect the users and that anyone else can interpret the data. So if you're hunting for investment opportunities in South Trenton, you need the data sets that allow you to do that. And those data sets will build and, and deepen over time. Uh, and if Solly is looking for uh, opportunities to um, create new employment for displaced tractor drivers in rural New Jersey, then he needs a, a completely different set of tools. So the data will start streaming from you know the, the minute the thing is turned on but it won't become truly useful for a few months i'd say in terms of you know informing policy in, in terms of being able to see trends emerge Sorry, did i answer your question or have i completely misunderstood what you were asking no definitely that that makes a lot of sense i kind of want to unpack what you're saying here you, you keep saying I'm just the plumbing guy. I'm just the guy coming up with this concept. And I feel like that attitude has led to some real inequalities developing in our society, whether it's the plumbing guy that accidentally lets lead into the water supply, whether it's the plumbing guy that lets extremism fester on social media. 
it seems like operators actually do have a real social responsibility. Um, so how do you op yeah yeah i want to hear your perspective on okay that. so i'm going to push back on that sorry um so yeah uh, the problem is at the moment you have plumbing guys who are, are actually very much driven by a goal which is unfettered let's make money so you know that's what's driving facebook to set up algorithms that push extremist content remember this is a regulated utility i'm talking about public officially markets poems. So I can't, as the operator, just go off and do whatever I want. I'm locked into public service obligations. I've got to charge a fixed percentage on each transaction, and that's my only return. I've got to focus on small transactions. Uh, I have to publish my code. Uh, I have to uh, enforce all sorts of regulations and rules. Uh, I can't control the markets. I can't be a buyer or a seller. I can't take any position uh, myself. I just have to put them up there. Um, so I would argue we can absolutely remove that problem. And it is legitimate to say I'm just the plumbing guy. So to give you an, a, a real world analogy, think of the US post office. They just deliver letters. They could open the letters and send all sorts of marketing information. You know, we saw you got a postcard from your auntie who went to Hawaii for a holiday. Here's a brochure from our Hawaii holiday partners. They don't, they just deliver letters as efficiently as possible. And government decides, elected officials decide you know, what shapes the post office, how many uh, pickup points do we have for mail in rural areas and so on. Um, and that's right, you know, elected officials are accountable. Uh, I'm with Winston Churchill on this one. Democracy is a terrible system until you examine the alternatives. It is much better to have uh, democratically elected officials, however imperfect they can be, uh, rather than sort of technocrats making these decisions. And you have to put, because the sheer power of the markets I'm talking about, you have to put a box around them that just says, no, you are just the plumbing guys. You do what elected officials decide because they're accountable. And uh, a system like poems could make them much more accountable because it's constantly verifying the identity of all the people working through it. So if I come and work for you, there's a photo of me, when you don't stop the transaction, when you de facto accept the transaction has happened, you're verifying that this person who the system calls, you know, presents as a photo of me and Wigan Rowan with my identity, um, you're verifying I exist. And that's going on day after day. So why not let me use the platform to vote? Because it's probably got a better handle on my identity than anything else. It's already interfacing into the passport system and all the other government databases, but it's got this layer of ongoing active identification as well. So once you've created this poems infrastructure for economic activity, it can very easily do a lot of other stuff as well. And that's where you get into how it can improve the quality of democracy and so on. So, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm standing my ground on this one. I am just the plumbing guy. Yeah, um, I can tell you in America, if we're going to talk about necessary infrastructure developments to implement this, if you want elected officials to manage this system or create legislation for it, add democracy reform to the list. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't think it's going to start in America. I really don't. It's just it's not the way you guys think over there. I think it, it well, it's certainly, it has started at local level over there, but I don't think it's gonna start at the federal level over there, even with the Biden administration. There is just this, this ingrained culture in America. But remember in, in places like Britain, we absolutely learn about penny postage and uh, uh, the 
public health acts and these momentous hinge moments that government created by saying, we see what this new emerging technology could do, and we want to do it, and we want it to do it for our citizens before the rest of the world catches on. And I think only when that has happened will America sort of at the federal level wake up and say, my God, we've got a markets problem and we need to start asking some questions about how we could solve them. But you know, this is about government saying each of us has now has the right to the best possible markets for achieving our economic potential in the same way we have a right to clean water. It's that fundamental. And yeah, I don't think it's going to start in America. Um, yeah, uh, so I'm actually going to flip back down to, uh, you're talking about the development of labor. Um, and I kind of wanted to unpack that more. Um, so I think that one thing to be said against the gig economy, I know you have your, your issues with it. Um, and I agree with you that it may be irreversible at this point. But, you know, there are a lot of things to be said for long-term relationships between employers and employees. I mean, if you say like work for Ford, you accumulate benefits over your 25 year career, you have a stable group of colleagues and friends, it's a different social group. You might have more ability to negotiate your wage and vacation time or even unionize. Um, and on the employer side, it's really nice to know exactly what you're employing and what you're getting. Um, do you think Poems has the capability to capture some of those benefits? Yeah, at the simplest level, you don't need it to, they already exist. So if you're in a job, markets if you're in a quality uh, job markets aren't that important to you you probably enter the labor market every few years when it's time to move on it's when you're in gig work that markets quality of markets access to markets is so important because you can be in and out of the market several times a day in search of your next piece of work so you know don't don't assume poems is sort of that all embracing there will be a whole chunk of the population in quality jobs who just don't need it or they might need it to get someone to come and cut their hair or, or mow their lawn or something, you know, but it'd be fairly peripheral. Um, so, but, I, you know, let's nail this gig economy point because we're getting a bit fuzzy on it. I absolutely agree with you that uh, quality jobs are typically better than gig work. Um, never forget what we call the core irregulars, these people with complex lives who aren't lucky enough to have 40 hours of availability a week for work. We've still got to think about them. But let's just take the people who do have 40 hours availability of work a week. If it helps, think about gig work in the way we think about an illness. So, uh, you know, we all agree. So we can agree gig work is bad. Uh, so we all agree arthritis is bad. So we do two things. One, we try and cure arthritis. And two, we do what we can to make life better for people who've got arthritis. I'm doing number two for gig workers. So I am saying uh, whether we like gig work or not is irrelevant. It's here to stay. It's growing alarmingly. And at the moment, there is so much hardship uh, caused to breadwinners uh, because of the current models. So let's solve those models. And nothing about that says, oh, so we're now going to stop campaigning to push back and create more jobs. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, I yeah, I, I see what you're you're saying about the gig economy. I, I definitely agree with you on that point. Um, I actually want to drill into something um, that you talk about, and actually I believe one of your TED talks. 
um, about how we can make the gig economy more um, similar to regular employment in a lot of ways. Um, and you talk about these online reputation scores that people have. Um, so first of all, I'm interested to hear kind of like how that works in reality um, in your Long Beach model. Um, but also it feels like online reputation scores have a lot of problems. Like I think of like Yelp and you have like family members reviewing their, their restaurant and you have jerks who just like wanna you know, crap on servers. How do you avoid some of those pitfalls? Okay, so um, most rating models that we know today are subjective. They are saying, uh, what, you know, what did you think? Um, government tends to operate on objective ratings. So we have a driving license. If you've got a clean driving license, it's not because people have written nice things about your driving. It's because you've never been caught doing anything that would get your clean driving license cluttered up with points and, and ultimately uh, removed from you. So apply that model. So once you stop thinking about these narrow vertical markets, you know, one market for doing people's house cleaning and another market for driving a van and another market for working in warehouses, start thinking about very broad horizontal markets. So all my different types of work are in one market. My rating in that market is now terribly, terribly important to me because uh, if I do a bad job in the warehouse, it's going to impact my ability to get I don't know, window cleaning bookings or whatever else I want to do. So now you can shift to objective rankings. So it's not uh, is Wingham a nice person? It's did he turn up and did he do what he said he'd do? Uh, and if he didn't, stop the booking. Uh, and the system will investigate. If he did, just let the booking go through. And as I build up more and more of these bookings going through for more and more different types of work with more and more uh, buyers of my time, you can begin to analyze my rebooking rate, all sorts of data, and you can allow me to use that data in ways that help me uh, forge new connections. So uh, yeah, uh, the current ratings model sucks. Um, in all sorts of ways, and it's 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 gained in it with in, increasing sophistication. Uh, but driving, it's very hard to uh, to get someone's driving license taken away by writing writing nasty things about them. you. Actually, have to prove they did something wrong. I I see what you're making the point you're making here, um, and I think it's true to some extent that government is more objective, but I. Want to push well, the back. courts think of the courts remember government as in some you know uh, the white house doesn't take away your driving license if you're caught driving badly the courts sure. do and they're they're not perfect but they're as accountable as we can get okay so you're saying well i'm thinking of like institutions algorithms whatever system we set up with the intentions of being neutral are very often not neutral i mean i'm yeah. sure for instance that black people in America have their like, driver's license taken away more than white people. I mean, yeah. I have no access to data, but I'm sure that's the case. Um, is there any way to avoid that? Or is your point just like this? No, is remember that this is just the plumbing, um, but one of the things it can do is track discrimination. So you let's say that it, it allows court officials to say, show me photos of all the people who were uh, had their uh, poems uh, track record downgraded over the last month. Show me all the people who had their track record downgraded by a particular judge or magistrate. Oh, that's funny because they all appear to be uh, from um, 
communities of color. What's going on here? So you've caught the problem. Um, it doesn't have a silver bullet solution to it, but it, it's much, much easier to catch um, because of the sheer amount of data you've got. Now, I realize this relies on uh, the, uh, the goodwill and good intentions of public agencies to be materialized, you know, to, to, for these benefits to materialize. But again, if you can make democracy more accountable as part of having better, as a byproduct of having better markets, you're beginning to close that loop. You know, I'm, I'm not going to say it's, it's, it's going to magically solve all these problems. I'm saying it brings in a whole new range of tools that people can use to solve those problems. Uh, and then I would say uh, it's up to legislators to mandate that the record of people sanctioned, whose trading record in poems is sanctioned by any given judge, that that information can be public. So you and I can call up the name of a judge and say, show me all the photos of the people he's sanctioned um, so that their trading record has been downgraded because he determined that they behave badly in the markets. And, oh, I can see the problem now. So I'm gonna start, you know, calling the, the local press and so on. So. They're tools, but they're not um, instant solutions. Um, I I really like the idea of where that's going, but, <laughs> but sort of on a on a no no no, no. on, a, on a flip side of butt. that. If let's say I'm to use your your roofing example, I've recently recently been hired. I'm going to work on some roofs, and my supervisor, you know, he's an equal opportunity employer, but he's verbally abusive to the people who are working under him. You know, that's not something that could show up from to the public's eye. Is there any way that I as a as a worker can use the system to maybe review him or say he didn't do his job as well as he well, should as the employer? I mean, th this is a question for the concession. This is a question for elected officials. Do Does the system do subjective ratings? And subjective ratings can go wrong in all sorts of ways. <clears throat> I mean, we dabbled in subjective ratings over here. And the first comment that said she's a good secretary, but she's not pretty enough was just subjective ratings are not right for this kind of system. So um, let's focus on what you could do objectively. You are treated badly by a supervisor on this roofing project. Well, the first thing you can do is just say to poems, I'm not going to work for them again. Um, you could say I will work for them again, but only if I get 30 bucks an hour because otherwise it's just not worth my while. And they, uh, the, you know, it will become clear that more and more workers are doing this are saying, I don't wanna work there or I'll only work there for a, a, a severe uplift in pay. So that information is now, the market is enforcing that information. That supervisor will find that crewing his roofing projects is getting harder and harder because anyone who's experienced a day of him has, has immediately jacked up their price. Remember you're in a broad horizontal market. This isn't like uh, you know the current gig work platforms where you've got a handful of buyers in each market. You know, if you want to sell your time doing deliveries in Trenton uh, this afternoon, there will be a you know five percent of the buyers of your time in in DoorDash, another five percent in Grubhub. Uh, you're in a very limited pool, so your options are narrowed down. Once you get to a very big horizontal, broad, deep market that is available to all these different intermediaries and so on, then you've got a lot more options. So you can turn options off. Uh, so yeah, uh, I would argue it does help with that. It uses market mechanisms to do that. Yeah, um, so we have
covered kind of the, the seller side of things. Um, and we've covered a little bit of the worker side of things, but I want to talk about how the experience of consumers would change here. Um, so I think one example that you talk about in your TED talk, um, and that definitely got me thinking about this, uh, is the example of drivers um, and how Uber and Lyft could supplant, like not actually Uber and Lyft, but Uber and Lyft like technologies on uh, poems could supplant taxi drivers who are heavily regulated. Um, but I think especially like in the realm of taxi drivers, regulation in London, for instance, does a lot. Like the, the drivers are trained really heavily um, and they provide really good products. So do you think consumers lose some of that benefit when you go to this deregulated model? Why do you assume poems is deregulated? Um, well, it's certainly less. I mean, it's not like drivers are going to go through the entire driver test. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but that's so certainly... It, Holmes is just the plumbing. It enforces whatever rules elected officials um, put in place. So if the rule is to drive a taxi in London, you have to do the test that is called the knowledge to really know your way around the city. Holmes enforces that rule. The minute you go to it and say, I want to sell myself as a taxi driver, it says, what's the certificate number for your knowledge uh, certification? And then it looks it up in the official database with your permission. And if it's not there, you can't be a taxi driver, it's that simple. But what it does allow is very nuanced markets. So our advice uh, to elected officials would be exploit that. So let's stay with taxi driving. You could have a market for very heavily regulated taxis and that's gonna be more expensive per journey. And you could have various stages of regulation right down to frankly, anybody with four wheels and a pulse can sell their time. And then you can fine tune it. So if you're teenage daughter is going to be staggering drunk out of a nightclub at 1am and needs a ride home, you are going to go for the very heavily regulated taxi because that driver has so much to lose by bad behaviour. But if you're a kind of 20 stone judo black belt who needs to traverse town in the lunchtime rush hour, frankly, you're not worried who your driver is. You'll just go for the cheap option. And if government wants to subsidise the high-end regulation to enable low-income people to uh, have the benefits, then poems will make that subsidy uniquely cost-effective to administer and audit. So again, it is just, I just keep saying this, I'm sorry, it is just the plumbing. Do not assume it enforces a business model, a social outcome, or anything. It's, it's like the, the, I mean, to digress for a moment, um, when the idea that government come up with a vision for highways, for roads, uh, was first mooted at the beginning of the 20th century. People said, well, you know, that's unbearable. Um, I don't want government telling me where to drive. I don't want government controlling what I do. And government doesn't. Government just makes sure there's a coherent set of roads with a coherent set of rules. It stops you driving on the roads by taking your license away if you drive badly. And other than that, you, government doesn't care whether you've got, you know, a 10-year-old Nissan or a you know, top-of-the-range Tesla, um, everybody just uses the roads. And it's the same here. It's just a system of markets um, with enormous precision and data generation and transparency and everything else you want in a market. It can have shades of regulation. It can do all sorts. But do not assume it undermines regulation for a moment. Current gig work platforms massively undermine regulation. It's, it's almost the cornerstone of the business model, but don't assume it's an inevitable consequence 
of new markets technologies. It's just the way they're being applied at the moment because government isn't articulating any alternative vision. Okay, so I, I want you to forgo your role as the plumbing guy for a second. Okay. <laughs> I know I keep pressing on pressing you on this. Go for it. But I think of something like the highway or like public utilities like water. And there's an incredibly complex model, especially in America, of how elected officials actually manage it. I mean, you have the Department of Transportation, you have uh, public utility boards, you have the state police. Um, some of those roads are like uh, toll roads and operated by private companies. There's an incredibly complex system of federalism going on here. And you're talking about, uh, for instance, you can get this nuanced regulation for like London taxes. Um, and it seems like that would be best controlled by the local London government. But then some of these other things would be best controlled by the national government. Um, so I, I want to kind of clarify that relationship there. So the, the operators just operating these this plumbing. And whatever level of government can control it in whatever that way they say fit, see fit. And it's just like, for instance, the plumbing within London can be controlled by the national government, the state government, or not the state government, but you know, the equivalent. City government. Yeah. Yes. Um, and the city government. Is that kind of what you're envisioning here? Yeah, so um, when government shapes this concession that incentivizes a consortium of public, uh, of private sector operators to build, design and run uh, poems, you need to give them a clear business opportunity. And one of the ways you do that is a protection you give them is that government will never legislate specifically for poems only rules. So whatever the rule is, I mean, let's stick with taxis, if there are uh, federal rules that have to be obeyed, and then there are city rules as well, that's what poems has to enforce. But they're not poem specific rules, they're just rules for taxi regulation that the system has to enforce. But for all sorts of reasons, you do not want government being allowed to use poems as a cash cow uh, to create sort of artificial booms ahead of an election and so on. It just follows the rules with extraordinary granularity. And then it's up to the operators who have invested billions to build this thing in the first place to work out, well, how are we going to structure the markets within all these rules? How are we going to offer the widest range of choices and the widest range of earnings opportunities? Gotcha, yeah. Um, so actually, I want to um, dig a little bit more into the... Um, buyer relationship here. Mm -hmm. um, so after CETA rolled out, um, which I believe was like a, a national prototype for poems in a way, I mean, clarify me if I'm wrong. There. No, it's uh, what we're doing in California is, is just what we call the small vision. It's, um, it's just markets for gig work run from within the public workforce system in the way that the public workforce system already runs alternatives to commercial job boards for people who are looking for jobs. Gotcha. Um, but you know, in Britain, you have this program, I believe it was called CEDA, um, or uh, C-E-D-A-H. Central um, Database of Available Hours. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's what we call the technology, yeah. Gotcha. So Tesco was a huge initial partner, right? Um, and it eventually pulled out in the mid-aughts um, and went for a purpose-built program um, to, to hire uh, like shift workers. Um, so 
are there ways you can improve your platform to make it more competitive? Or is that kind of an issue of their lack of foresight and horizon? No, I mean, there are definitely are ways. I mean, resources is a huge issue. So the problem we have in America is uh, you have this amazing machine called the public workforce system in America, and it, it billions of federal dollars pour into it. It trains people, it supports them. Uh, it, it recruits, it gathers data, but it's focused on traditional 20th century job creation because the system it responds to six performance metrics and they're all based on sort of job retention and these 20th century measures. And increasingly, some very far-sighted people who run workforce boards around the country know this needs to change. You know, employment is getting more and more fluid and we need to be there uh, supporting that workforce. Uh, for the sake of the workers and also for the sake of our local economy and local businesses. So uh, because the, the public, uh, the federal workforce money can't be used for projects that aren't doing job creation, we've had to be funded by national philanthropies. So you know, kudos to um, Annie Casey Foundation, Walmart Foundation, Wells Fargo Foundation, Kaufman Foundation and Irvine in California, who have all enabled this. Um, but that is our problem compared to the resources that pour into gig work platforms uh, and into workforce scheduling tools. Yeah, I mean, we're a minnow, we're a fly speck. Uh, I, mean, I don't know if you followed the famous Proposition 22 in California, but gig works companies spent $205 million just to overturn a law that might have given, well, that would have given some of their workers some protections. You know, that's the kind of resources um, because we've got this huge imbalance, which, again, I argue is part of the market's problem. As more and more money gets sucked up into the efficiencies of Wall Street, that money has to then go somewhere. And it looks it alights on companies like Uber, which do have enormous growth potential uh, and gives them you know, enormous sums to subsidize market launches and make their platform you know, eye wateringly exciting to use. So yeah, we can't match that. It's the, the lifelong uh, downside of being the good guy on, in, uh, in these yeah. issues. Yeah, I get that. Um, but you know, on top of that, you do have this issue of all, not only being the good guy, but also being the visionary. You're kind of selling a revolution in the way we work. And I remember reading this Guardian article about your work. And they talk about how, these, how all these civil servants in Britain um, and obviously those civil servants are going to be more forward thinking than those in the U.S. I know that the U.S. is not your target market, of course. Um, but, you know, they've been, dis they, they've been fairly dismissive of you. They, it feels like they want to get smaller solutions. They want to regulate reform instead of revolutionizing. Um, is that their problem or is there a way? <laughs> well, no, it's, a, it's very much our problem. Um, yeah, I mean, there is. There is a natural tendency in governments around the world at the moment to, to think that the solution to the market's problem is regulation and battling the bad guys. So Proposition 22 in California is an example. The California state legislature passed a law, AB5, uh, which came into force at the beginning of 2020, that said the gig work platforms had to give uh, workers on their platforms employee rights, minimum wage uh, and benefits which would very much have escalated the standing of those workers, but would have potentially threatened the business model of those companies. Um, so they, uh, the 
Gigwork companies launched an all-out battle in which they spent 205 million to overturn the law. Uh, Labour groups put 20 million into a, uh, trying to preserve the law. The states uh, earmarked 20 million to enforce the law. And at the end of it, you know, a quarter of a billion dollars has been spent, and we're nowhere better off, frankly. So I would say you have to keep thinking. Why doesn't government look at what alternative choices it could create? This is all about more choices. This isn't about government clamping down. You know, I'm saying create a system of publicly backed, officially backed uh, public official e-markets and let people choose if they want to use it. And if they don't, that's very bad news for the consortia that funded it. And it's tough on their shareholders, but it's not a problem for government or taxpayers. So that's what we're talking about here and yes it can be very difficult to get that message across because somehow it's it's almost sort of more visceral you know oh these people are doing terrible things to these vulnerable workers i am going to go and battle them well you could or you could just sideline them uh, it's a less appealing notion it's harder to explain it's more nuisance nuanced you have to kind of give it some mind share but yeah my view, what keeps me going, is you only need one country to do it and get it right. And history shows the others follow. You know, every country in the world has what Britain invented with penny post. You know, the, the buying a stamp, putting it on an envelope and sticking it in a letterbox used to be called penny post. It's just everybody does it. Everybody has uh, an equivalent of the, the water supply model that, that came out of Britain. Every country uh, regulates its spectrum for broadcasting and, uh, and air traffic control and mobile telephony and so on. So it's not about you've got to convince them all. It's you've got to find the first country that will do it and then make sure they do it right. But yeah, um, I think there'll be a few more years when everyone will be fighting the bad guys. Um, which is frankly very good news for bad guys because they've got the money, they've got the brand, um, they've often got uh, some very resourceful people on their payroll. Um, yeah. yeah, if I was Uber, I'd be terrified of government coming up with an alternative for um, the flexible labour force. So I know we've talked a lot about the ideas and the big concepts behind poems and, you know, but when you think about, you know, as you as you put it, the fight, what is what is your current target right now? What are you focusing on just for our listeners? Where do you think the next the next step of what your organization and, and your work is is headed towards? So we're focused on this this intersection of government uh, enablement and modern markets technologies. What kind of modern markets could governments create? The people at the bottom of the economy uh, and we have as i say the small vision and the big vision so in the small vision which is sort of gig work markets run by public workforce agencies uh, our task is to expand what we're doing in long beach california uh, and deepen it and learn from it and keep developing the tech uh, and work with a growing range of stakeholders on what those markets could do and make sure that functionality is scoped and, and built in on the big vision the Look, we just need national governments to say, have our citizens and local businesses got access to the best possible markets across the whole of the microeconomy? And if they haven't, what are we going to do about it? Yeah, uh, well, that's a more eclectic mission, but um, I would say, realistically, 
in the next few years, given everything that's happened in, with COVID and the recovery, I think a first country will start asking those questions. You know, you just need a first government to sort of stop uh, panicking about social media and, and long enough to ask, have our people got access to the best markets now possible, which to pursue their economic potential? And if they haven't, could we do something about it? Once they start asking those questions, a huge part of our work is done because they will inevitably go down this path. Yeah, well, we believe, we don't think there is any other answer uh, that's cost-effective and um, efficient other than yeah, government initiates alternative markets, but make sure it gets out of the way of the private sector in delivering those markets. But yeah, watch this space. It's, uh, it's a checkered ride. Yeah. Now I kind of want to, we're, we're coming in on time, but I, I want to wrap it up with kind of some stuff just about you because you have a super interesting background as we kind of talked about in the beginning. And first and foremost, I'm sure you were very different than a lot of people that you're interacting with in the British Civil Service in that you didn't do exceptionally well in high school. You'd never- Oh, it was a disaster, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you went straight into the workforce. So how do you think that's influenced your perspective on the workforce and do you ever see this kind of different backgrounds butting heads when you're talking to civil servants and other members? Oh, oh a big time. So I, I failed all my exams at school. <laughs> um, I grew up in uh, a little village in Somerset, which is a very rural part of the west of England. Uh, I worked on a farm uh, most nearly every day. Uh, I was very unacademic, very uninterested in school, bullied at school. Um, and I started writing letters when I was about 16 to newspapers and television stations saying, I want to be a journalist. Um, what, what can, you know, is there anything I could do? And I got a few little features in a newspaper. I got a few little spots on a local TV station, which unfortunately coincided with my school leaving exams. So I was uh, off in TV recording studios when I should have been revising. Uh, and yeah, predictably, uh, came out of school with no qualifications and a real burning hunger to be in the media uh, and just got really lucky. I got a runner's job just running around TV studios, sort of, you know, collecting cameramen's sandwiches and dropping off videotapes uh, as they used in those days. Uh, and out of that, I managed to wangle some on-screen auditions and then I became a reporter and then I got a, uh, my own kids TV show uh, called Ryan's Report, which was quite something uh, that was back in the early 80s when being on TV was really something everyone's on TV these days but in those days wow uh, it was pretty gobsmacking we only had three channels in Britain they shut down at the uh, about midnight every night um, so I got the bug at that point and yeah I never had formal education and then I did start doing this TV show about sex on the internet and I did get bored of sex on the internet and believe me you do after a while um, and that's when I started thinking about and learning about economic you know, exclusion and all these other sort of issues that lurk under the surface for people who have a reasonable life. Uh, I mean I've always been freelance so I was always in insecure uh, uh, employment with long periods of non-employment uh, and then yeah, uh, as I say I, I wrote the books, uh, worked with the Demos think tank in London turned it into a sort of policy proposal and assumed it was just so blindingly obvious that government would work out how to use these new market technologies for social good and then was kind of shocked when they didn't. Uh, 
And then, yeah, I started talking to a lot of civil servants and politicians and presenting at Downing Street. And yeah, um, we have a phrase over here, Oxbridge, which means you went to either Oxford or Cambridge universities, which are our, our equivalents of Princeton or Yale. And uh, I was meeting an awful lot of Oxbridge people and I didn't move in their circles. I didn't necessarily speak the way they speak. Um, and yeah, I'm sure with hindsight, I could have made a better job of trying to pass myself off as part of that set. But once you are primarily known for interviewing foot fetishists and exhibitionists and adult babies and people who claim they've had sex with aliens on telly, it's quite difficult to reclaim your reputation as a sort of academic. So. Um, yeah, uh, it's it's a weird world, but you know we all wash up in ways we don't expect. So it certainly happened to me. I mean, it does seem like it sort of has has played into what you do now, though. I mean, the the modern markets idea, you know, it, it aims at collecting those who get left behind by the other gig work economies. And do you think that sort of your, your experience interviewing and working on the sort of the fringe of the internet, do you think any of those ever intertwined? Oh, yeah. Big time, big time. And yet to be serious for a moment, um, uh, when, you, when you go back to the early to mid 1990s and you look at the way the internet was being used and it was just a world of sort of chat rooms and AOL and so on but you could see people coming together in ways that just hadn't been possible before. And you could see how liberating that was for them. And, you know, it's easy to make light of, of foot fetishists, but seriously, if you are, if that is your driving passion in life, to be able to connect with other people in real time and talk to them online is actually hugely empowering. Um, and yeah, I saw that, um, and it, it was a joyous explosion, you know, for, for a whole load of people. They couldn't believe that they could spend all these hours in chat rooms, and people were putting cameras in their bedrooms, and then going out and picking people up in bars and bringing them back and doing all sorts of stuff for the you know enjoyment of a worldwide audience. It was extraordinary the ingenuity and the excitement. And this was before commercial forces had caught on to the internet, and uh, in, well, largely. And yeah, uh, and it was thinking about that, but in the context of economic activity, that I see the real, I saw the really exciting potential of this technology. Um, and you know, I modestly like to think that some of the work we did foresaw a lot of these markets issues and the markets problem that we now live with. Um, and we've, we've forecast it in articles and so on. And it has come to pass, but, but the vision is still there. It is extraordinary what modern markets technology could do for equality, uh, racial injustice, uh, in terms of solving it, uh, better education, more responsive public services, regional advantage, economic recovery. Uh, uh, we haven't touched on how you could have a much more green economy with better markets um, to tackle climate change. It can, it can do all that. And the technology has developed exponentially. It's breathtaking what it, these technologies could do if we were able to unlock them for broad societal and economic good. And yeah, that keeps me going. Yeah. Um, so just two more questions. Um, one of which I think it's interesting that your, your education background probably did not introduce you to a lot of like, you know, 
political economists, labor experts, all that stuff. Um, and we talked kind of about how your ideas are go hand in hand with, you know, someone even like notable in the modern world, like uh, Mariana Mazzucato, but also, you know, the classic political economists like Adam Smith and Karl Marx. So I'm just really curious, you know, did you come up with these ideas kind of by yourself floating around the internet or what were some of your intellectual inspiration? Um, I was spending all my time immersed in the early days of the internet and I was already a member of a think tank called Demos. Uh, and I went to them and said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time on this weird new thing called the internet. And if it takes off, and we didn't know it would at that point, it's gonna be a lot about a lot more than people posting sort of, you know, nudist photos of themselves in parking lots. And we should be thinking that through, but it's something to do with markets and it's something to do with government enablement around markets. And Demos, to their great credit, organized a whole series of uh, workshops with technologists, policymakers. Uh, out of that, in 1997, I wrote a first book about it all that tied it together. Um, and then uh, following that came a book published internationally in 1999, um, which was outlining the kind of core of it all. So yeah, um, it, it's always been a team effort. I've had thousands and thousands of conversations. People have uh, poured their financial capital, their political capital, uh, their knowledge into this. Um, somebody has to hold it all together and that's kind of the function I've taken on. But no, some people far, far brighter than me have worked on this. Well, we're, we're so appreciative that you've come on the show today. Um, and obviously the name of our podcast is Policy Punchline. So we'd like to close by asking our guests, what's the punchline here? What do you believe is the most important thing that our listeners should walk away from our interview with you with? We have a critical markets problem in economies now. It's like a fault line running through your country's economy. Um, this, this divide between the very, very sophisticated, powerful markets used by institutions at the top of the economy and the cost-cutting, uh, slanted, limited, uh, siloed markets that we have at the bottom of the economy. The only way you're going to solve that is public policy that aims to deliver modern markets for all. All right, there it was. Um, thank you, Wingham. Um, we talked about uh, modern markets, about what the root of inequality is and the unequal distribution of modern market technology and some concepts about how to, how to solve it. Um, you can check out uh, us, Policy Punchline, at policypunchline.com, on Spotify and iTunes, wherever you listen to your podcasts, we will be there. Um, thank you, Wingham. Uh, thank you, Ryan, first of all, for co-hosting. Wingham, is there anything you want to plug while you, you got the platform? Modernmarketsforall.org. Gotcha. All right. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only 
and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.